the next episode of Gig Ready is here. I know you're excited, but before we get started, let me remind you of just a few things. Number one, value. We want to provide value to you. So please tell us, email us, message us on Instagram, send us a DM, tell us how we're doing, tell us how we can help you. Let us know what you want to see and hear so that we can get better. Secondly, if this podcast has been valuable to you, share it with somebody, tell a friend, let them know what you're doing. Let them know what you're listening to because we are going to help as many people as we possibly can. I want to say thank you so much for the value that you provide each and every week as we supply more podcasts, more content, and more exciting things for you to look forward to. I thank you for your dedication. Thank you for all the hard work you put in each and every day to become a better event professional because this is the Gig Ready Podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Jordan Goodfellow back again, gig ready, excited for our conversation today, talking about all things touring, video direction, and how to execute in the high stakes world of video when it comes to touring. We're talking with Skip Twitchell. He has directed some of your favorites down the road. Since the 2000s, we're talking Andrea Bocelli, Linkin Park, Aerosmith, Stevie Wonder, Journey, the list goes on, comedy tours abound. Skip, thanks for being here today. Glad to have you. Nice talking to you, Jordan. Thanks for asking me. (laughs) You're welcome. We had, Skip and I were together for a number of years on Linkin Park back in 2010 to 2014. Um, Had a great time some contention at moments. Uh, I've never had anyone yell at me harder than Skip did uh, in, in England once. It was, uh, it was an eye-opening and life-changing moment for me, but a story for another time. So I'm really happy to have him here. And, all in the uh, interest of excellence, my friend. That's all <laughs> that's, it was. That's right. I, I, I still remember how I felt after that, like going from zero to, you know, I'd never seen you yell at anyone ever. And then all of a sudden you just unleashed on me. I can still like visually see the backstage area and the big open area where we were setting up video where like it, it was, it imprinted in my mind that much. And oh, ever since then, Birmingham. Oh, sure. Yeah, I was, I was <laughs> yeah. a little heated. I will admit that, but Hey, you know, it didn't last long. No, it didn't. And, and, uh, and it, you know what though, honestly, it, it, it was a life changing moment for me. And, um, Someone had to call me on it, and you did, and I can't thank you enough for 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 doing it. I'm glad it worked out well. Yeah, and, I'm not I'm not a yelling guy, and uh, if you if you're gonna get me to holler, something's got to be going on pretty serious. <laughs> but uh, it like I said, it was a moment a moment that came and went. All as well. It did, um, and I think and I think that everything got better after that too. Um, if I remember correctly, that was like 2012, I think, or something like that. And uh, it, just the rest of the tour was smooth. Not that it wasn't smooth before then, but um, it it was a great perspective shift for me. And it's actually uh, really, were, truly you were, uh, All those years, you were a fabulous partner to have on the road. And it was really an example of how, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, but teamwork making the dream work. 
because we had, even though a lot of the time it was just you and I, and we didn't have a video crew of five or six, <laughs> it was just you and I and a minimal, minimal amount of gear changing countries every day. And yep. uh, we, we'd knock it out of the park every day. We did. We had a lot of fun. I told somebody the story the other day about when we, when we shot the entire show with a GoPro on on a wireless on a wireless broadcast pack because none of the cameras. We're gonna do that. That that one's later on down the list here. That's actually on my <laughs> list later on here. That was the the on one of our lovely visits to Brazil. Yes, it was. Well, so we'll get started talking about <clears throat> being a video director. I mean, you've been doing this for so long. In fact, you started. Uh, back when you lived in Indiana, you grew up there as a producer. Um, so, I mean, you've been around the live music industry since the who, I mean, you were talking Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, you know, such an incredible history. Now you moved yourself into the world of video direction. Um, as you defined that over the last 20 years of your, of your professional career, what do you see your role within not just the video team, but the whole touring family um, as a video director, what do you see that role as? How do you define that? Well, I was really lucky to get started with uh, Nocturne, which is a company that Journey built when really video started first entering the touring world. And the great thing about the Journey guys and Herbie Herbert, the manager, was they preached the show is a full piece it's not the light just the lighting or just the sound or just the video if you're not looking at the show from a holistic point of view from the crowd's point of view yeah you don't notice if a set piece is out of place or if maybe one light doesn't work they're not going to start bad mouthing the band so you as as a crew member need to think about the big picture i know i spent a lot of time talking to people about the big picture that if you're <laughs> a little bit too worried about just your your particular little problem you got to look at how it affects the whole thing in order to be an effective crew member and uh yeah. basically successful happy crew member on tour that's right very nice um you know that was i remember your ability to sacrifice like your thought process when you think about what other people need the ability and the willingness to roll with the punches through some of the countries you know, putting your, you know, being willing to go sit in the back corner. Oh yeah. We can take that five by five piece of real estate for video, video village. We'll shoehorn it in there. Um, just teamwork. You're right. It, it 100% is part uh, or the main portion of touring. Um, well, you, need, you need to be able to, to defend what your part of the puzzle is and not give so much up that you can't do what you're there to do in the first place. But yeah, making that work with everything else. It's, you know, the sound is science and the first necessity, if you're going to have a concert, if everybody can't hear, you don't have a show. Yeah. Second after that lighting, lighting is art. It's it, that you're visually enhancing the show, but maybe you're only got the cheap seat. You're way in the back of the room, which means video visual enhancement is your key to be able to be able to enjoy the show. Yeah. So huh. I've always said, I don't just, even though the artist might think I work for them, my actual client is Joe Schmo or Jane Schmo, who is in row triple X and paid 35 bucks for their top row seat. That the only way they're going to figure out what's going on on stage is by what they see on my screens. 
So I'm delivering the front row eyes to the back row seats. Yeah, that's a great way to describe no that. No matter, no matter the artist, no matter the venue, Manhattan, New York, or Manhattan, Kansas, doesn't matter. Yeah, and was that was that something you just picked up naturally over time, watching shows, being a part of shows, or was there somebody that really inspired that in your psyche as you you know grew up through the years of you two, Joshua Tree, Bon Jovi, Eagles, etc. Early tours was just after the Joshua Tree run. I was on George Michael. I was a handheld camera on stage for George Michael when he was in his absolute peak of his career, and. Uh, I'm on stage with the camera and I would shoot a reversal on him as he's out downstage looking over the audience. And uh, he would shake his butt and the girls would go mad. And I would zoom in on his butt when he shook his butt and the girls would go even crazier and talk about instant <laughs> gratification. It's like, oh, I can have an effect with somebody all the way back there. If I'm in the right spot and get the right shot, the director will cut to it. The girls will all scream and we all walk away happy. Yeah. Okay. I I couldn't have said it better myself. Perfect. That's... It, was, it was really, it was demonstrated to me. Nobody ever really defined, defined it, but it was. Uh... Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Yes. So... Some good and some not so good sometimes. Exactly. So looking at all of these projects that you've, that you've done, I mean, really each tour kind of it's, you get the front and the back of it. And, and regardless of whether it's a new album cycle or it's just another run of the same, you know, grouping of, of, of a show, when you walk into a project for the first time, a new artist, a new, uh, a new tour, how do you manage that from the beginning? You know, when you want to look at, all right, here's the design, are you involved in the design or do you normally come in after it's all there and you just have to make it work? And then how do you manage that process? In the best of possible worlds, I'm involved while the design, before the design is locked. Yeah. Concepts have been paraded before the artist and they've decided what direction they want to go. And um, the designer which, you know, there's, there's people who design to reality and there's people who don't care about reality, but that's because they're designers. That's not their problem. That's right. <laughs> but it's, it, it's our, as working crew people, we need to take that design and turn it into some manner of reality that we can move 400 miles a day and still make a show wherever we land. Yeah. So, um, I, earlier the better that i'm involved i prefer plenty of times i am handed a fait accompli it's like here it is make this work yep i know that and, feeling you know, it's and really you try you have to take the blinders off look at the big picture hopefully you're getting some uh good feedback and information from production either if not from the artist directly, then from the production manager, whoever's manning the ship, conning the ship as it were, so that you're, um, you're not just making stuff up on your own. Yeah. Some people you... like freelancing, some people can't stand it. <laughs> and having yes. your eyes open and being able to, you know, being able to read the, read the field as it is. Yeah. How do you, 
how do you stay, how do you keep things organized? Um, I mean, of, of course, from a touring standpoint, same process, you and I've had this discussion, do the same thing every day in the same order. That way you never forget any step of the process. Um, in fact, I remember very critically, I think it was in 2010, sometime in the fall during our first tour together, you and I had a very succinct conversation about that because there was some challenges with getting everything up in time or something like that. Um, and that helped to keep things just progressing through. Um, what else are you doing to stay organized during the process of the touring, load in, load out, all of that? Well, repetitive motion is your friend. That's the, in a touring business as rather than doing um, corporates or individual one-off live events, you have the opportunity to take a second bite and a third bite and a fourth bite at the apple and improve your production game each time and streamline things. On the um, artistic side of it, it's the same thing, is that you get a second and a third and a fourth and maybe a 156th chance to refine your cues. Really, from an artistic point of view, for image magnification, for iMag, side screen stuff, you're trying to show the audience what they hear. Mm -hmm. if, the, if, the, if somebody's doing a guitar solo, and you're, you've got the bassist up on screens, somebody's scratching their head somewhere and you're not really doing the job you're doing. That's right. I, 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 you say that, I look at video now, like if I'm watching a concert and the person that's playing or singing is not on screen within you know a few seconds, I'm like, I wanna yell at the screen, I wanna yell at the guy, <laughs> what, what are you doing? Why, why is that person not on screen? Um, well, it's, you know, each department has their reason to be there. You know, yeah. Like my, what was one of my favorites? Sound is science. Lighting is art. Video should be in by noon. <laughs> well, that's the way it used to be until they put LED screens behind everybody and hooked them in with the lighting crew. And now we're showing up first thing of the day with the lighting crew and there's no more slacking around on the video crew. Nope. No, there's not. First in, first in, almost last out. You know, well, you're, you're fighting not to be last out most of the time, but yeah, it's um, from a directorial point of view, you are doing a visual interpretation of the music for the people from 20 rows back. Yeah. From the 20th row back, because you don't want to distract the people that are close enough for the band to make eye contact. Or. Okay because they are there to play for a live audience. Well, it's changed a little bit now that everybody's staring into their phones. Yeah. That doesn't help the, con the whole thing at no. all. But uh, when, when we started on um, Joshua Tree, there were no screen. We we're doing stadiums, and where there were no screens on the stage. The only IMAG screens were behind the front of house mix condo. Huh. Because the previous tour, U2 had done a single screen on the front truss above the stage. Uh, and the problem with that is everyone's eye is drawn to a television. No matter where it is in the room, if there's movement on a screen, it's, you're going to go, you're going to be distracted and look at it. So if there is a 
TV screen above the stage, you're going to look up at that screen as often as you're looking straight up at the band. So, and the, the other problem is when you look up, nine times out of 10, your mouth falls open. So when the lead singer is looking into the crowd and instead of making eye contact with the people, he's playing to a bunch of drowning chickens because they're all <laughs> looking up at the TV screen with their mouths hanging open. All of a sudden they decide they don't like video very much. Interesting. I've never, I've never thought about that before. That's a really, that's really cool. That was, so, that's, this, is, yeah, this is how this is evolving a client into liking video because you go through three U2 tours. You go from Unforgettable Fire, where you can see the, the clips of them playing Red Rocks with the screen above the stage. How you keep that screen up in Red Rocks is another story. Yeah. Um, you, you go to Joshua Tree with uh, Ivy Hush. So this is how you develop a client who might not necessarily like video so much. So they had done the unforgettable fire with the screen above the stage and the distraction of the audience. Then, so when they came to Joshua tree, they only wanted the IMAX screens behind the front of house mix so that everybody in the front would be looking at the stage, not at the screens. Yeah. We accomplished that so well on Joshua tree that when zoo TV came around, it was all video all the time, every place. I still don't know of a tour that's had 328 individual live screens like Zoo TV had. So it was pretty huh. much a high watermark in the video production world that I still don't think has been bested. 328? Um, we didn't, it was before the LED era. Yeah. So there were, it was, um, Projection cubes were a yep. large portion of those. So the big screens that you would normally have on the side were stacks and stacks of, oh, call them maybe three by five foot screened projection cubes that stacked together with little 5K projectors in the back. They were built as a box. Yeah. And uh, the, stacks of, the stacks of those projection cubes were affectionately known as the buffalo. Because we heard them across backstage and closed down any possible exit route when everybody else is trying to load in or out. Once you release the buffalo, we have always blocked until we get our stuff into position. Got it. Three or four truckloads of them. Wow. Plus some scattered monitors everywhere. Stuff huh. in the Hunter House. It was it kept building and building as the tour went on. Got it. I have the I have the U two show the big thick hardcover book that they put out. I don't know ten years ago, eight years ago, something like that. I'll have to pull it out and look at that because uh, they have Zoo TV there. Um, and there's monitors it, all over the stage. There's he he had a Bono had a, a remote control that he would change channels on. Uh, that was that was in those days. He was he he'd call the White House every show. Yeah. And uh, you know, sometimes you'd order pizza for the crowd. Okay, very cool. What, so anyway, um, that, that's the whole evolution of you know turning a band's opinion from hating video into totally immersing themselves. Totally. No, I. I that's a great descriptor of the process. Um, and, and so, looking at that that evolution, software um, and different computer-based, I mean, video technology has, has advanced umpteen degrees since that 
era. And, and so what, what are some solutions that, you know, that you use or have used or are wanting to use in the future that, you know, that have made such a progress that weren't possible before? Well, the technology changes every two years. So you've got to stay up on the technology in general just to stay current. I yeah. mean, that's the, the, the danger of investing in gear is you've got to get that gear to pay off. If you don't have the gear paid off in 18 months, you better have a good idea of how you're going to work it hard because yeah. the great, latest, greatest thing is about to come out and it's going to step on your, your dreams there. Yes, it will. As you well know, I'm sure. Um, so we've always tried to be on the forefront of the technology edge. You know, everybody likes to do the latest, greatest things and designers yeah. are completely enamored with that. So they, that's part of their sales point is I'll get you the best thing ever. They just made this new way to slice bread. You're not going to believe it. And, it's a uh, semi serrated knife instead of a fully <laughs> serrated knife. Um, this year's model is now the XR stages. Yeah. Where now we have the ability to uh, completely enfold an artist in pre-produced content where we're controlling cameras. We can do foreground and background set pieces. We can basically take them off into a fantasy world where there it's uh i'm curious as to see how this will come out of covid and how it's going to get used in a real touring application yeah a little that's bit like uh, yeah i mean that's that's it's like the um when they were doing the the gauze projections for um two-pack at Coachella and they're doing, yeah. you know, bringing, bringing people back to life in that manner where you can, you, you can kind of pull it off, but it doesn't really lend itself to touring. Hmm. So uh, we'll do, we'll just have to see. I mean, everybody invents, manages to invent something new every year. We're still doing it. So it's, it's, it's we've, I mean, when we started, it was Ida four projectors and uh general electric ge light valves which ge light valves projectors were invented um at the behest of the air force to huh. be part of a um flight simulator to project your three screens around the flight simulator where you would actually be sitting in a cockpit that was mounted on hydraulic gimbals oh wow but, and uh those projectors were meant to be installed serviced and never moved for 30 years what did we do <laughs> let's we take them on the road <laughs> we put them on it in a truck every day and hauled them up and down and uh, the the problem with the the light valve was the way it worked was there was a lexon disc that rotated through an oil bath inside this machine huh. so the electron gun wrote on this plastic screen, the film of oil on this screen, then a really bright light was banged through that. And that's how they made TV pictures. Problem is this, this nobody from GE would ever admit what kind of a oil it was. Although it would go, it would ask like Crisco, it'd go solid at about 70 degrees. 
Anything above 70, all of a sudden it's a super light oil. It would melt. Huh. So if you happen to tip one of these projectors on its side when it's hot, oh. all the oil soaks all the electronics and takes the machine out of the game. It makes wow. do not tip a deadly uh, I mean, if, if, if the thing is still, if the bulb is still hot enough, you might explode the lamp. Interesting. But the best way to give a projectionist a heart attack is to take the empty projector case, put it in a hallway, <laughs> put it on its side, and pour a little puddle of something next to it. And when the projector comes, <laughs> comes around the corner and sees his projector laying on its side leaking, <laughs> and he will probably need to replace his underwear. That happened more than once. I love that. That's a, that. It's a super great prank. That is. It's so. It's and it's so safe. You just drop a little bit. Of, was it clear liquid or was it? Was yeah, the yeah, oil? it was clear liquid. So you could. Use, you didn't have to use oil. You could use water next to the thing, and the That's gag awesome. would come off just as well. But, so uh, how? Then I have a question there. So how would you get more oil if you needed it? Would you have to send those things back to GE and they would then replenish it? I never had anybody have to replace the oil. I mean, we did because if if you had a serious oil spill in the thing, it wasn't field serviceable. Got it. Okay. You had, I mean, you'd, you'd always be pulling, my, replacing modules on the thing. You're always pulling off high power modules and this and that and the other thing that would fail for various other reasons but um yeah it was like uh it looked like a giant ice cube tray that this yeah. circular disc would rotate through i think the rotation on the disc was like every 10 minutes so um if you had a little hiccup in your sink it would leave a little blast on the on the oil and you would see these look like a little saturn that would kind of slowly rotate through your picture until huh. it had passed. As the thing was like a Rubik's mouse, a mouse trap. I don't know how, how to describe the thing, but got it. We only had them for a while. That was that was the first uh, five or six years of. Still though, fat. I mean, fascinating. That's like, I mean, geez, that was when I was born. What was that? What was that early eighties? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So wow. they, went, they went. Yeah, we're still. We actually. We're still using them in 93 when uh, the initial production design for Michael Jackson had uh, Jumbotron, tall, skinny Jumbotron screen next to a projection screen of the same aspect. Huh. It was not very smart because you couldn't match the brightnesses. Yeah even with a dozen projectors versus the jumbotron you couldn't get the projectors quite bright enough and we about killed three or four projectionists trying to make that happen just because they'd be working 26 hours a day trying to squeeze wow. as much brightness out of the projectors as they could huh wow man history is so i mean 40 if you think about the history of our industry i mean it's it's call that 40 years um and the advances come a long from, way. It's, that's amazing. I mean, we can now throw up led walls in, in hours that are the same size and take up half or a third of the space and weigh half as much. And it's, 
it it really is cool. And I can honestly say I'm really glad I came into the world of video after three chip DLP <laughs> projectors were created. Um, you know, my first my first experience was like digital projection, eight GVs, five DVs. So like 2000, 2001. Sure. Um, and those were like the eighty thousand dollar projector at the time for eight thousand. Well, I mean, it's it's the price. The the initial price point rarely changes. I mean, the the GEs were a hundred grand a piece when it when wow. it started off with, and you still have to buy your own two by fours to brace them up. <laughs> I mean, the amount a million dollars of gear that I've I've braced up with a random two by four, I shudder to think. Wow! But if we'd bring it up, bring a whole box of just spare shim stock, just be able to. Oh yeah. Make the, the shots every day. The two dollar two by four that holds up the hundred thousand dollar projector. That's every I, day. I, yep, every day. What, uh, man? All of this technology changing. Thinking about um, the the different execution ways that you have to do things on site. What are you looking for? on site when you're at a gig when you're at a show let's say it's a new crew and you're on your first one or two tour stops what are you looking at what are you assessing how are you changing or adjusting things to make sure that you get into that rhythm you know because you're like all right we got 10 weeks 12 18 weeks 12 months of this thing um you know what are the critical things you're looking at to help manage that and then to to do it um the first few shows, first few ins and outs are always an exploration of what the process is going to be. The design often dictates the process. I mean, you've got to build trusses. You've got to get them up out of the way. Um, the production decides if they want to do a rolling stage or do a house stage and so how you get that done. Audio's got to get in and up. Yep. And whatever video elements you're doing, whether it's an upstage wall or whatever screens or whatever else you're doing things need to go in a logical possession progression so that you're um getting things done and you're not nobody's always standing around waiting for something to happen constant yeah. forward motion is the goal and uh you need to stand back and look at the big picture. This is a, where a great stage, where stage manager makes all the difference. Yep. Where they can read how to maintain forward progress without impeding one department or another. And what it means from a crew point of view often is that you're spending a lot of time on standby, but it's not standby, I'm going to wander away and go next door to the mall. It's standby and watch what's going on on the floor so that you can jump in when your opportunity presents itself. Yeah. hundred percent. So, um, if you're going at it once again, you gotta be a big, big picture guy and look at the whole production and go, okay, well, what could I be doing while I'm waiting for the lighting trusses to begin to rise? Can I go out and build front of house? Is there a way I can, do we have a rolling stage or the things that I can build on top of the stage before it rolls in so that once the stage rolls into place, it's all about backline and uh, getting ready for sound check. Yeah. It's really become very apparent in the last couple of years with the K-pop bands coming over that these guys 
are not their their viewpoint on production is i would like to i need to have rehearsal time before we get to sound check so i would like to start my dance rehearsal at one in the afternoon Whew. what time do you need to start loading in to have the floor ready for me to start rehearsing at one wow and are there oh, that macros in the day oh it's it's a challenging well and the set and the setups are giant in some in some respects so mm -hmm. i'm guessing you're looking at 4 a.m 5 a.m load-ins at that it, point it makes, it makes a whole different aspect you have, you have to look at the production completely differently in order to give these people the time they need on stage yeah wow interesting because if you tell well, them that's possible they'll find somebody else to do the job yeah so then you got to figure it out and the great thing though about doing the same thing day in and day out is it gets faster and it gets quicker and it gets i mean that that really is truly one of the things i loved about touring was that doing the same thing day in and day out is that it's like every day it feels like oh we're two minutes earlier than yesterday and you compound that over the course of you know 10 15 20 shows and all of a sudden you're like wow first show we didn't finish loading until 4 30 and we're just squeezing in sound check and now it's two o'clock in the afternoon and you know production managers going to play golf because you don't have the band there and you're you know you don't open doors until 6 7 o'clock or whatever you know i mean it's but you it, start, many times you started to her thinking i'm two guys short i'm three guys short on this crew there's no way we're going to be able to get it done in time yeah and the um one real um telltale of the quality of your crew is how long the shakedown starts how long the shakedown takes before you really start shaving time both on your in and your out and yeah. things become started when you're not you're not still sweating at doors to get all your stuff working yeah 100 percent. i'm i'm with you on that and having gone through the process with you um it's a great way to watch yourself evolve and and thinking through the process and thinking through that big picture and really helping everybody to look at that's why doing the, things the same way every day is completely to your advantage and everyone else's for that matter and yeah it's worth but that being said the fastest is not always the best way I am spending the second half of my career fighting against the old line that the shortest line between the shortest distance between two spots is a video cable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're not, we're not stringing laundry here. You need to settle down and follow the path. Take the time to lay your cables in a manner that not only doesn't impede anyone else, but is makes it able for you to suss out a problem if something's broken. Yep. Because if you're just throwing stuff down in a mess and you're not dressing the cables out properly and not taking the time to make it neat, when you get a cable failure mid-show, something breaks, you don't want to be on your knees under the stage with a headlamp throwing cables over your shoulder going, what's this, what's that, what's this? You want to be able to find your own stuff all the way through. And that's a very hard learned lesson for a lot of people. Yeah. Being neat, taking the extra time to be neat saves you time, doesn't lose you time. Now, looking at all of the parts of a tour, the other side of it is how do you work yourself 
into a tour as, you know, you spent a lot of time, let me back up, you spent a lot of time working for Nocturne, but that still was partially freelance. I mean, you're, you're, you're a contractor in a lot of ways. You know, the touring world is very different than like the world where it's, oh, well, I have a job and I go to work and I come back and every day is the same thing. I mean, you're constantly working to find work. Um, what, what are some things that you would do to, to find work as a video director, creating relationships, networking, you know, what are some things that you would do to, to help move yourself forward in that manner? You want to be somebody that the production would really like to have back on another, on a subsequent round. Yeah. It's, it's really about um, maintaining a performance level. Really. A production manager's greatest dream is to give you a task and be able to forget about it, have total confidence that it's going to be accomplished and is not going to kick up any dust or cause other problems in the process. So if you can make it so that um, basically they give you the brief on video and let you walk away and do what you do, and there's not going to be any issues that they're going to have to deal with, Next time it comes around, you're just making their job easier and they want you back because having you around makes you, that's why we got the Lincoln Park job. Because yeah. the guys were there before us were making a mess of things and, and the gear wasn't always working and the people weren't always uh, on the case trying to do their best to get the job done. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. So we came um, in that and you know sat down with Jim said, okay, what do you need? This, this, and this. Very good. I'll let you know if there's a problem. Otherwise, you're not going to hear much from me. That's, yeah, that's great. And yeah, you're right. Production managers, they just want the guys, hey, do this. This is what we need to make happen. Okay. And it happens and it just works. Um, but that was always the great thing. And I, and I like having production managers that way that don't micromanage, that they're not showing up in video world every 10 minutes asking you, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Did you get this? Did you get that? Well, um, building, building that confidence does take time and experience with you. And you can't expect people to have that kind of confidence in you on the first meeting. Yes. And it really needs to be demonstrated over time that a, you understand their vision B that if you're having a problem, you will definitely come to them and keep them posted about it. Another great production manager lesson I got early on was, I can't help you with what I don't know about. Yeah. Because most production managers want nothing more than to see you succeed because that makes mutual success. Yep. Yep. No, that's right. And, and you're, that's, I agree with you. Jim, actually, Jim Digby helped me a lot talking about that. Um, you know, he always told me, he said, all I, I expect you to be a hundred percent by the time we start the show. And from then on, I understand that things happen. And if something goes wrong and I need to know about it, just let me know what's going on so that we can fix it as fast as possible. But we understand that equipment fails. LED tiles sometimes stop working. Cameras have issues. Lenses, you know, I mean, it, it's the road. It's what happens. And having a, a team of people that don't just get mad at everybody when something does go wrong. Um, well, is a, he's, in is a, position a huge where he, he's the first person that the band's going to come to and go, Hey, something's screwing up. 
And he's yeah. got to have an answer for them right there on the spot rather than, oh, I don't know. I'll go ask. Yep. He's That's right. Know it all before we even come to him and tell him what the yeah. problem is. Yep. And, and, and it's more than just um, technical stuff, A, B, replacing tiles, making sure the lenses are right, this and that. Sometimes everyone contributes to the general atmosphere of a tour. If there's somebody that's always yelling and is always kind of mad about stuff, those feelings telegraph through the whole crew and through the whole production. Yeah. Um, if there's an issue, everybody, you know, the fastest form of communications, telephone, telegraph, teleroadie. <laughs> if anything is going on, the whole crew is going to know it in about 30 seconds. Yeah. I'm, but if, you, but I'm if you've done your job, that. go yeah, ahead. One night on LP, it was a super hot night. It was a shed tour. We had um, video underneath the deck on stage inside a set piece. And uh, I think that was at the base rig. Something wasn't working. It was 10 minutes to show. And there was a serious doubt about one of the band members gear was being worked on feverishly. And everybody was worried it wasn't going to work. And the word had actually gotten back to the band that this thing was broke. So when we heard that oh, the band's all nervous that this thing isn't going to work. I'm sitting there with Mike Waro as my engineer underneath the, the bunker, we called it, in the back of the stage. That's about 96 degrees back there. <laughs> it was stinking hot. So I look at Mike and go, Mike, we're doing the show topless tonight. Take your shirt off. So when the band comes out, to take their places for stage all worried about one of this piece of gear not working they all got to walk through the bunker and they see me and mike sitting there doing the shirt doing the show ostensibly in the nude what is complete distraction forgot completely about the broken thing started laughing at us meanwhile the backline guys get the thing fixed and turned the show into a laugher and they went out and they had a great show we all had a lovely time and uh, you took the picture, I think. I did. I have the I have the photo. At least two of them, actually. So every so often, when I'm scanning back through my photos, I see I find those, and it just puts a smile on my face. And, that was uh, a total. That was a total band distraction move to get them to quit worrying about somebody else's job and just go out and do yours. That's right. And if you do your job 100, percent and something does happen, you can be confident in knowing that you're, you're secure because you did that what you were asked to do and sometimes stuff just happens and yeah. and there's nothing you can do about it there's so many people that get afraid oh my gosh you know the led tile or that that thing stopped working i'm going to suddenly lose my job because one little screw up or one little thing happened oh, no. when I've, I've lost clients over bad tiles i've lost clients over over tiles that Nobody could figure out how to fix it. And yeah. it flashed for three quarters of a show. And we ended the show and it still wasn't fixed. And uh, that was the last show we did for that client. And, and I can understand that. I'm more talking about those times where you've done your job and you have a production manager who understands that when you're trying to fix something, you can fix it and you get it fixed. And that it was 100% when the show started, but you still did your job to execute on what it was. And even though the show wasn't a hundred percent, 
the effort to get it fixed, which you did succeed in, is what happened. You're very lucky if you're in a position where the stage the production manager or the stage manager can afford to take that position. Sometimes they're you know every the the attitude comes from the top of the production. The production manager is yeah. working for somebody, and if uh, they are you know there's a lot of producer die people where it's you know if you can't make this run i'll find somebody else who does there is no patience yeah. uh so you know you can be particularly blessed when you're in a position where you have an understanding and yeah. uh and, it's all production and, and and a little bit of grace goes a long way i mean that makes people work harder for you um i mean that is why i worked as hard as i did when I worked with Lincoln Park for the years that we did, because I knew that you and Jim had my back and that I'd give 100% every day, making sure everything was there and up. And if something did go wrong, we would fix it as fast as humanly possible. Oh, yeah. You've got, you've got, you give a lot more slack to the hardworking guy than you do to the guy says that uh, is, uh, am I done yet? Yeah. Am I done yet? Can I go to the bus? <laughs> are, we still, are we still working? What's going on? <laughs> exactly well so with all the gear working every show because that's the perfect world um yeah. you know when you're not having to fix problems you're able to be creative um yes i understand creativity within problem solving but on a show when you are you know as the director you're creative you're trying to create an experience for the the audience as you said you're working for the audience you're working for the person that's up in the nosebleeds they pay 35 bucks and their only image their best picture of the show is that video screen when you're doing the same thing every day how are you keeping that creativity there that you can still deliver the same quality show but it doesn't get mundane and boring after you've done it for the hundredth time what 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 does that look like um there's it's like jumps in resolution when you first go through rehearsals or you first go through the first set of shows with a group you find cues that you hit in every song be it solos be it a little drum fill here be it a move by the lead singer there that pretty quick say in the, inside the first couple three shows you find what those major hot points are and the long it's like staring at a picture the longer you look at a picture the more details a still picture the more details you see yeah so once you've been through this and everybody it's it's the whole thing is a team effort it's not just about the director it's about the camera yeah. guys about the engineer shading it's about the display guys making sure the projectors or the led looks proper but as you go through the evolution of a tour, the first break I find comes uh, 15 between shows 15 and 20. You'll have gotten comfortable enough with all your regular cues that you're looking for something to do in between those cues. So you'll have, you'll have a one night where everybody is starting to look for, ways to fill in those gaps in between cues and they'll screw up a little bit and miss what they've been regularly doing the whole time and kind of you'll, you'll have you have a not so great show <laughs> because boredom is set in and they're looking for other things to do other than you know and then you come back to the show after that and all of a sudden bang you got 20 more cues in the show yeah 
Everybody's got the regular things they hit. Now they found something to fill those holes. And that evolution, depending on how many shows you're going to do, can happen three or four or five times down the road. So by the time you get to show 80, you started at show 15 with 100 cues. You're at show 70, you've got 600 cues where everybody is still hitting their, they're still hitting the things, they're finding things in between the cues to hit. Yeah. Very cool. I like that. That's a, that's a great way to, that's a great explanation about that. Um, you know, the creativity within the, the industry that we, that we have. Um, a lot of times I think people don't realize that there's a, just as much creativity on the technical side of things as there is on the artistry side as the artist, the performing, you know, the person that's performing. Um, and, and, I, and we have to remember that going into this is that as people, you know, lighting is art, um, video gives that experience to people, especially those that are far away. And so I, I think creativity is incredibly important. Um, what do you like the most about being in the hot seat? You chose to put yourself there. You know, someone at some point in time said, hey, Skip, this is you. Um, and you always used to label your chair the hot seat. So <laughs> what, uh, what you chose to be there, what brought you to that point? And, and what do you like about doing it? Um, it's all, everybody always, if you're not the director, you're complaining about the director to somebody. <laughs> That's just the way life is. You know, everybody, if you're, you know, everybody thinks they can do things better. Yeah. Some can, some can't. <clears throat> when you get, when you finally get a chance to, then the pressure's really on for you actually to execute. Yeah. And it's, I found I enjoyed the pressure of having to execute more than having to keep my mouth shut, shut and watch somebody else screw it up. I mean, that's, huh. it, you know, every, it's not rocket science. I mean, if you have, if you have a basis in how to compose a shot and you can, your communication skills are enough that you can teach what I used to call the pitch and catch to cameramen where they can leave a negative space on part of a frame for the next shot to fill and they're not overstepping each other and putting two masked shots on top of each other. If you can manage to communicate that in the process of a show, yeah. then once everybody gets the feel for that, you know, some people can see it, some people can't see it. Sometimes you got to, you know, sometimes you get a carpenter on a camera who is a whiz bang camera guy. And sometimes they'd be better off with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. You don't have the option. <laughs> yep. I get it. What do you like the least about being in the hot seat? Um, or what don't you like? It's the, it's the dealing with people who aren't on that understanding side of things. Like we we're talking about in the last subject, it's if my way or the highway and it's rather it's in my mind, all these things are collaborative projects and when it's what I tell you and exactly that, then there's no collaboration going on. That makes it difficult to want to excel. Yeah. Uh, one particular artist. We, I don't know how we ended up on the tour because he really hates video. 
but we got told at the beginning of the run all right oh you got three cameras out in front just like the old time ed sullivan show one in the middle one on each side where the whole show is going to be black and white until the last song and uh this is the last conversation we're going to have goodbye not thank you goodbye just goodbye so so okay um you know he, he was of the opinion that he could reach the back road just fine he didn't need our help got it and uh, i don't know if his manager talked him into bringing video along or what how we ended up there yeah and uh you know we got we got through the six or eight week run had no contact with him from then on <clears throat> didn't have any you know come roaring out of the dressing room incidents from him because of something we did because we did exactly what was asked of us yep <clears throat> and uh this you this know didn't, reminds... didn't didn't <laughs> make any effort to get really creative in the middle of it because we'd already had our brief this is what you yeah. to do and uh if he wanted to change his mind about what he wanted us to do he'd come out and tell us there was no yeah it, uh, it reminds me of another of another specific artist we worked with when you and I were together that we had a, a, a semi-similar experience with about this is how you're going to do it and this is what it's supposed to look like and that's that <laughs> there's that's, you know it's it's the uh, other half the other side of the coin it's not that that uh, uncommon really yeah that's, yeah well it's part of the game you know yeah. it's not fun but they're the ones paying the ticket at the end too so yeah, it, guess whose name's on the marquee that's right that is right so what we love the best what we love the least what's the toughest job you've ever done um most grueling i wasn't the director yet but probably 16 weeks on a russian cargo plane Whew. where we went around the world we went from la to las vegas the wrong way around in 86 days or something like that wow and uh with two antonov um antonov's a russian cargo plane that can hold though eight or nine semis worth of gear freeloaded so wow. we would land we would land at an airport empty the planes into local trucks go to the stadium do a show send the gear back to the airport load our planes back up half of us would get on the cargo planes and fly the other half would jump on a charter and uh fly to the next city and we it's about four months wow went around the planet that way with various misadventures who was that with michael jackson wow crazy that doesn't sound like a lot of fun that's well you know, it's it's the adventure. It certainly got the <laughs> part to it. Um, they had uh, bolted down actual like little military style bunks in the upper portion of the plane for us to sleep on. So we actually got a lot more sleep than we would. It was like a giant bus in that respect. Yeah. But um, the local trucks often left something to be desired. And uh, the company running this. Um, freight airline was called uh heavy lift volga to Dnieper, 
the European community put it together. This is right after the right after the USSR fell. And yeah. these planes, if they don't fly once a month, they fall apart. And these are some of the biggest cargo planes in the world. They're used to fly giant machine parts around the planet still to this day. So um, we did a show in southern Japan, and the next stop was Moscow. We couldn't fly over China, so we had a, an extra long flight north up above Japan and then across Siberia. We land in Moscow and empty the planes and go to do a couple of shows in the stadium. And uh, Benny, our production manager, we're getting we're midway through the second show, and Benny, the production manager, calls the airport to the airport coordinator says, "Hey, how are we doing? Are you going to be ready to start taking gear uh, in about an hour when we we start sending stuff out to the airport?" He goes, "Ben, we it's going to be slow. We got a little bit of a problem." <laughs> um, so the the booking office for this company was in London. <laughs> But all the operations were run out of Moscow. Nobody in London knew anything about it. Nobody in Moscow would cop to anything. But Morris, the airport coordinator, went out to check our two planes that we had leased for the four months exclusively. And both planes, 20 feet high, 18 feet wide, 140 feet long, were full of Snickers bars. <laughs> An actual million Snickers bars. Oh, wow. That, that while we were on the ground for four days, they had done a little run up to Amsterdam and come back. And there were four guys in a forklift that were at Russian speed unloading the first of these two planes that wow. were filled completely with a 280 feet worth of Snickers bars. That's incredible. <laughs> Did you guys get loaded that night? Oh, yeah. There was a, there was a lot of candy on the tarmac. <laughs> Once we get out there to to help the load along, but uh, you know it probably put us five or six hours behind. But five or six hours dealing with that those two planes was pretty normal. Wow, that's incredible. That's a that's a really funny story. That's awesome. Well, well dog and those named Snickers in honor of the the event. Yeah, man, that's incredible. So, what? what can I, the person listening that is wanting to look at video direction, they want to be a video director or something like that. What can they do to work their way to grow, I guess, into being able to actually fulfill this position on an excellent level when it comes to the touring or, or just the corporate one-off world? Well, studying what other people do is a great start and understanding the motivation for using particular camera shots. I mean, you're telling a story. It's not, it's not just typewriter cut and dried stuff. You're trying to, I was so lucky that when I first started getting into video at a little video art house in San Francisco called Video Free America, I had a, a mentor by the name of Skip Sweeney who skips um dream was he wanted to play camera in a rock band hmm. to treat the camera as a musical instrument where you are interpreting the sounds that you see you're coordinating your motion to the pace of the song you are um doing a zoom 
so that when you are have made it to the tightest part of your zoom on the singer and you can move off them just as their line ends so being able to visualize that is a great start pre-visualization is huge for every yeah. part whether whether it's about the cut or whether it's about production as to how your day is going to go from the time they crack the trucks on if you can if you've laid in bed the night before and thought about each step of the day um you've got a better chance at uh getting through it smoothly and being able to pivot when the challenges we know will happen come up anyway yeah huh very cool um great that's a really great you've always been so good at describing these things like sometimes i can't describe something that is very natural to me or very normal to me and just listening to everything you're saying it's, it's so great to have someone that can actually really bring descriptive description to it um, a doctor of analogy it, it, yeah exactly um so wrapping up the last question i ask everybody on every show is of course we're in covid world right now not many people are doing work there's definitely no tours on the road but looking forward we're going to go back to work at some point in time we're going to go back out on tour what are two things that the roadies the touring guys whatever they want to call themselves by the time we get back to that point what are two things that they can do that will help them be more gig ready the next time they go back out on tour go so if you're already in the business one way or another find a way to add a skill or two improve your understanding of power yeah. um maybe find a different if you're if you're a video guy maybe some simple media server stuff there's a lot of there's a lot of different kinds of media servers out there everybody doesn't always want the latest greatest most expensive thing and if you can accomplish what their vision is for a better price a lot of people will be very interested in that yeah that both you know work on your skills try to add a skill and uh think about we know that the, the a road job is 50 percent you're doing your job and 50 percent getting along with everybody yep. else and uh check yourself for those skills as well is there anything i can do to get along better and really visualize it as a team play i mean for about two days when everybody gets back to work we're all going to be buddy buddy and then it's going to be right back to where we were before where yeah. it, you're complaining about the guys leaving stuff in your way and somebody's clogging the vom and but yeah. uh and practice looking at the big picture of everything i mean that's it's a uh being able to get out of your own corner of the world and try to see it from a holistic point of view is completely valuable for everybody because then you're you're not only going to solve your own problems, you might even solve somebody else's in the process. Interesting. I love that. Three things for the price of two. I I, I love it. Um, you know, skills, working with other people, seeing the big picture. Um, uh, the three things you need to tour at the level that you've been 
able to tour at for so long. Um, hopefully, he's we going to come back with a vengeance. It's going to be a little bit, yet. Yep. <laughs> and uh, we'll see who who is still around, who's willing to jump out of the however they've managed to survive and go back to this. Because it's not an easy thing, and and truly, if you don't love it, don't do it. Yep. Because it's too hard otherwise. If 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 you're miserable on the road for whatever reason, you shouldn't be there. Yes, you're not doing yourself or anybody a favor. Nope. There are uh, plenty of other jobs, plenty of other gigs, plenty of one-offs, plenty of other things. Um, you know, going around making everybody else else's life miserable because yours is is never fun for anybody. So. <laughs> Um, that's awesome, dude. Well, Hey, thank, thanks so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. Um, the stories are great. Um, I, I personally like that one of the best things because I hearing all these stories about where we came from, um, and learning from what we've done and where we've come from, I think is the greatest step forward that we can take. Um, I found as over time, I've become a bit of a historian on the, all this stuff. And because I've always taken such pride in this as a profession. This has never been a summer camp for me. This has always been something I've wanted to do from the get-go. Yep. And I've tried to inspire that in people along the way. Whereas if you're just here to try it out for a year and maybe I'll just do this and I'll go back to whatever I was doing, that's real nice, but I don't need you around. I'd rather, I'd rather take somebody who desperately wants to do this and try to help give them the tools that they need to be great. And I've had a lot of great experiences with a lot of people, especially over the last few years, being a labor manager, I've put a lot of young people to work that are want this in the worst way. And I've given them some great opportunities. That's awesome. Want to, you know, if you, if you consider running 28 projectors on Drake, a good opportunity. I'll give you, but <laughs> I had that. that on scarred, so. Yeah, I grabbed, uh, I actually grabbed, coffee with steve belfield in the middle of that whole thing because he was out rigging for um rigging for the for that show and he said it was quite the challenge to get things done on that it was just such a pain it was huge no I, my last encounter with him he was on adele and i was i, I was in gotten some tickets and i was sitting in a suite like 80 feet above him and, and realized I was almost leaning over his work table off the side of the adult. <laughs> <laughs> I just throw a, a paper wad at him and get his, just get his attention. From 80, from 80 feet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Something, something, a little piece of popcorn, something that wasn't going to hurt from a long time. A long time. <laughs> That's right. Well, awesome, dude. Thanks for, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I know it's been a bit of a longer episode than normal, but I loved it. It's a lot of fun and uh, we'll talk to you next time. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Awesome, Jordan. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. The last eight months in our lives have definitely not been easy. It's certainly been a challenge to figure out how are we going to navigate this time frame? How are we going to move, change, shift, adjust mindsets that have been ingrained for so long? As you go forward through today and the rest of your week or your weekend, Know that there are others out there that are standing right beside you, fighting the same fight you are, working at just as hard as you are to try and figure out a way to be better, to be stronger, to move on and get to the next phase of where we are. Gig Ready is about just that, working together to find a better way forward. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day.